Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. And I really want to thank one of our listeners for telling me about our guest today. He said his grief was lifted tremendously by the workbook and videos by Dr. Piero Calvi Parasetti. Dr. Parasetti is an Italian-born, Scottish author and speaker. He is a medical doctor who has worked for many years in the humanitarian aid sector with the International Red Cross and the United Nations. For the last 15 years, he has been a university lecturer teaching public health and disaster management to graduate and doctoral students at three major universities. His books include Adventures in Psychical Research, A Medical Doctor's Exploration of the Nature of Consciousness and Its Survival to Bodily Death, also 21 Days into the Afterlife, and the workbook is called Love Knows No Death, a workbook for transforming grief. Dr. Parasetti is passionate about educating people with his unique method to help all of us understand grief, death, and life. His website is drparasetti.com. And without further ado, it is my pleasure to say, Dr. Piero Calvi Parasetti, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Thank you very much, Sandra. Such a pleasure talking to you. Oh, and it's a, such a pleasure meeting you. And literally, Dr. Parasetti, I have my radio show, This We Don't Die, on YouTube. And under one of the comments, someone had mentioned you. And I, I hadn't known anything about you. And I, I looked at your videos and I thought, wow, this is really somebody interesting. And you seem so genuine that you want to make a difference. And I thought, yes. you've got to be a guest. <laughs> this is so kind. But please call me Piero. Dr. Parizet is a bit heavy. Piero's okay. perfect. Piero. Okay. That's what I will do then. Well, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you Are, are you yeah. in Scotland? I am in Scotland, in beautiful Glasgow, nice. uh, which has been enjoying an, um, an unseasonable uh, warmth. Actually, uh, you know, in the west of Scotland, it rains 320 days per year, which is an awful lot. Right. It's not that it rains all the time, but you have at least a little bit of rain practically every day. And last summer has been quite reasonable actually we had good weather and even now um, as i'm looking out of the window it's blue sky which is a bit of a rarity oh. here and not cold at all that's wonderful and for our listener i don't know when you're listening but for us we're recording this on november 4th 2016 so anyways you know a little bit and let's hear a little bit about you were you already always interested in the medical profession if i can ask that Thanks very much. Yes, I think that your your introduction was was very thorough and, and covers the basis. I, I graduated when oh God, nineteen eighty six, and for about seven years I've been uh, a GP, a junior uh, general practitioner. So I did practice med, uh, clinical medicine, but then I got then I got in, interested in uh, humanitarian operations, 
I wanted to bring my doing good uh, to up to, to another level. And so I took a master's degree in public health in Wales. And then after uh, a few years of trying, because the access to the international organizations is not necessarily easy, I got hired by the International Red Cross and I had what I certainly considered the best years in my life when I enjoyed uh, what I'm, I'm not ashamed to call a bit of a spectacular career because I was very motivated. I thought that I came to this earth to do that job and I wanted to save the world. And I was considerably lucky as well because I found myself at the right place in the right time uh, a few times. So I, I quickly outgrew medical technical roles, got into middle management in the field, that is the management of all aspects of a, of a humanitarian operation, not only health, then into senior management at, uh, at um, the field level. Then I was called to the Geneva headquarters in Switzerland of the, of the Red Cross and put in charge of what was then the largest ever refugee operation of, uh, of the Red Cross, the Rwanda Burundi Task Force. So, you know, when you're that young and that motivated and that enthusiastic, you think that you're going to be the next, uh, I don't know, Secretary General of the Red Cross, then of the United Nations, and then, I don't know, Pope or Emperor of the <laughs> World, you know, something suitably, <laughs> suitably high, That's high funny. level. And in fact, I did, I did make it to the UN, and that was 1998, uh, and I, I had gone from medical roles to management roles, and then I, I did take an, yet another step into policy, and I worked into the policy environment of the humanitarian sector, but I'm afraid that the United Nations experience was not for me. And so it was not a good, uh, personally, a good step to take. And that had stripped me of my desire to become emperor of the world, which is a good, in many ways, is a, a good, good thing. Is a good There's thing. a lot of responsibility being emperor. Yeah, indeed, world. indeed. And, and humanly, I like very much that my ego had resized to the size of a small pea. And so in, in uh, we're, we're now looking at year 2000, I took up this late academic career and I, I'm, I'm happy because I managed to to leave my frustrations with the, with the UN bureaucracy out of the classroom and I, and I tried to convey to my students all the original red-hot enthusiasm that had brought me to, to humanitarian affairs and that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years and I'm semi-retired now. I do still uh, teach a little bit, but the, the coordination and the PhD supervision, that's, uh, that's gone. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, what you're passionate also about, though, is helping people transform their grief and believe in life after death. And may I ask, have you always had a belief in life after death or did you go on your own spiritual journey? And I guess the question, my biggest question is, you know, why, why do you believe in life after death? Ooh, uh, do you have a year and a half I available? Do. I do. This records <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm one, like, I understand like yourself, I'm one uh, in, the, in the scores of people who started from a, from a 
very difficult, very different, different standpoints than the one I have today. Remember that as a as a Western educated medical doctor, I was taught basically that all this simply does not exist. It's right. not possible that all that exists is matter. If you cannot touch it, if you cannot measure it, uh, it simply does not exist. And particularly that mind, what we call mind, is solely the product of the of the physical brain. And I mean, anything having to do with survival, please <laughs> forget right. it. Yes. And it so happened that uh, it was uh, not long ago, it was about 10 years ago, uh, we were living in Switzerland then, uh, my wife and I. And my wife, we were in the kitchen, I remember very well. And she told me uh, a, a little anecdote. She's from Glasgow herself, and that's something that happened to her when she was uh, an adult, a late adolescent, if you want. I would classify this as a, as a little spooky story, interesting, but nothing earth-shattering. But I remember that my, I could see that she, she was still perturbed after all these years by by that particular episode, a, a rapping event, and you know, not even not even to the poltergeist level. Let's say I, I would say interesting, but not earth shattering. And so, with uh, I mean, if anybody, to tell you the truth, if anybody else told me that story, I would have just said, "Oh yes, haha, how interesting," and and that would have been the end of it. But you know. My wife being the person I trust most, inevitably, I said with my stiff upper lip, let me see if anything serious has been written about all this, you know, crackpot, I would have said then. And I immediately stumbled upon the 575 pages uh, of a book called Is There an Afterlife? Question mark by a very credentialed psychology professor here uh, in the UK. And uh, boy, did those 575 pages change my life because I found already there a lot, a mountain, an ocean of what I call evidence. It discussed this term. A, a little bit more in depth in a moment, that seemed to point to this, this unbelievable truth, which is that in a way we do not understand significant aspects of human personality appears appear to, to survive physical death. And that for me was utterly, utterly nonsense and, and unbelievable. But I might have been a, a and how could I say, an educated materialist, but I hope I'm not stupid. Right. So uh, that my non-stupidity allowed me slowly, painfully, with all my difficulties, to change my mind. And those 575 pages were followed by about 30,000 more. I really took a passion and enthusiasm, what I would call a scholarly enthusiasm, uh, for, for the general subject of psychical research. You know, psychical research is a term which is a little bit out of fashion these days. Psychical research um, 
includes what we call parapsychology, that is the study of the psychic phenomena, but also notably includes the survival hypothesis. So I was interested in parapsychology, things like uh, precognition, telepathy, psychokinesis, and all that, but I was particularly interested in, in this outlandish preposition that human personality survives physical death. Mm -hmm. And so I studied and I read and I accumulated a lot of material and I did my own reflections. I became a member of the Society for Psychical Research here in the UK of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and I'm sure most of your listeners would be familiar with either of the two. These are professional scientific organizations. I went to conferences, to study days. I even trained personally with one somebody I consider one of my intellectual heroes, Dr. Raymond Moody in the U.S. And Raymond Moody is the, was the first one to write about near, actually the second, to write about near-death experiences in the 70s, but he was the one to sell 25 million copies yes. of his book, Life After Life, that we all know and, and revere. So, yeah, he was just our uh, guest on the show a few oh, episodes there you go. ago. There you yeah, go. I, one of my heroes as well. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Delightful, delightful mm -hmm. personality. And so, um, inevitably, since I, 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 have, uh, I have a few real gifts, actually two, I think one is languages, and the other one is the facility to communicate and to write. I, I think I, I, I write well, I write easily, and so I started writing books, and these books that were far, far from, from the success you yourself had, but I mean, I, I, drew, I drew positive <coughs> positive reviews, and I was happy with that. And so this captures myself, um, let's say, up to 2012, a few momentous years of reading, studying, reflecting, understanding, and basically coming to the, to the uneasy. And when I say uneasy, I mean that I do not have an explanation. I do not have a model. And all that I hear about the quantum field and the non-locality and all that make my, you know, makes my my toes curl up inside my shoes because I, I cannot buy into that. I'm rather I'm a lot more at ease saying I don't know. I don't understand. I do not have a model that explains what happens. But to the best of my intellectual ability and intellectual honesty, I am today convinced that, A, what we call mind is certainly very closely linked, but independent from the physical brain. Mind is more than the electrochemical activity of the brain, on the one hand. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, this uh, unbelievable truth I was I mentioned just a moment ago, that is significant aspects of human personality appear to survive physical death. That's the place where I stand today. Uh, it's not uh, a place 
where I find myself because I had uh, experiences, because I did not. It's not um, a position that I take on the basis of faith. It's not because it's written in a holy book or because I had a spiritual revelation. I think that my path in this incarnation is a path of rationality, of studying, of getting to know the evidence, of critically evaluating the evidence, of you know measuring up what's against and what's for a certain hypothesis. And my conclusion today is what I just told you. Mind cannot be reduced to the activity of the brain, and yes, we do survive physical death. And like always being a rational belief, what I call a, a, a belief based on uh, reason rather than on faith, is a rational belief. And by its own nature, is always a temporary belief. Because I'm open to the fact that should other pieces of evidence or other explanations uh, come forward, which would com convince me otherwise, I'm again available to change my uh, my beliefs and my ideas. I don't think this will happen, but I'm, I'm open to it. I'm, I'm very open to consider any piece of evidence which would disprove what I believe in today. Oh, that's such good news. And I, like you, didn't have a near-death experience or any fantastic experience that convinced me. It was just similar to you doing lots and lots of research. And there's a a different it, it is something different i mean faith there's nothing wrong with faith but there's a difference between like having this knowing that the afterlife is real and having faith and for me faith alone didn't rest my fears um i had a fear of dying that's how i got into all this but after going on my journey the confidence that i have and even speaking to now you're my 123rd guest on this uh show hearing wow. these stories it is I, it's a different way of living life having the confidence that um life after <laughs> death is real absolutely mm. absolutely may i go on Five yes. minutes about evidence, because this sure. is something that I, 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 I how could I say it's a, it's a big word, but I, I think I've <laughs> structured, structured my thinking, hear that, I've structured my thinking uh, around evidence for, for life after life. Yes. And when, when, I, when I give talks, I show this image, the slide when I'm introducing this subject, I show a slide of a pyramid, and the pyramid is divided in slices. There's the bottom slice of the evidence pyramid, which is by far the largest one, and it's called anecdotes. Anecdotes are the stories people tell, and anecdotes are completely disregarded by these religious zealots we call scientists, mind you, scientists, not in as those who do science, scientists as, in, as those who believe in the religion of science, right? They say, oh, the plural of anecdotes is, uh, is no data. Hmm, how very interesting. Now, imagine that in a court of law, we would not believe the stories people tell. 
the entire legal system would collapse as we know it. Imagine that in a consultation room, in my medical practice, I would not believe the stories my patients tell me. The entire edifice, edifice of clinical medicine would collapse. Yes. It is, I mean, um, thinkers much more learned and intelligent than me than me have pointed out this particular thing as a major, major intellectual and methodological mistake that's done. The first point is that we have masses and masses of compelling anecdotal evidence pointing to the survival uh, of human personality. Mm -hmm. This evidence is no proof, but is a very strong indication, is a very strong trigger for further research. We cannot discount it. We cannot live our life as if this did not exist, right? And so this, these masses and masses of anecdotal evidence has, for over 150 years now, triggered the second level of my evidence pyramid, which is smaller in size. And I call this investigations. And investigations basically amounts to uh, people, and when I say people, in most cases, I refer to trained scientists who go out in the field in a naturalistic environment, that is, when and where things are said to happen, and try to make sense. So people tell that mediums talk to the dead. And so often it has been many, many times the case that, as you know better than me, trained scientists go out and apply as many controls as feasible to weed out what is true to, from what is not true. In many cases, they discover fraud, but in many cases, they have no other explanation than saying, yes, it seems that this particular medium is capable of receiving or extracting information from discarnate personalities when all the other possible channels of communication have been ruled out. And I could go on and on and cite uh, examples of investigations in all fields. I think there are about 12 areas which are independent of each other, 12 different areas of investigation, wow. all supporting the survival hypothesis. And, and as I say, I mean, each of them have their lots of anecdotes supporting it. And those anecdotes have been investigated for a century and a half. And in many cases, many, many cases, the claims the anecdotes would point to have been basically confirmed. But then again, we are in what I call, and I'm sorry if I if I <laughs> take a little bit of an academic tone here, but I, I hope this is not difficult to follow. Investigations, I said, are carried out in, in a naturalistic environment. It's like a biologist, you know, an ethologist who goes out in the jungle and observes a certain species of animal and, and where and when the, 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 the animal lives, 
That's a naturalistic environment. Okay. But still, the super skeptic may say there is the, 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 the kind of controls you can apply in a naturalistic environments are not unlimited. There are certain things that you do not have control. And then we come to the third, to the top of the pyramid. And the area is small. We start with a big area of anecdotes. Then the middle layer is somewhat, somewhat smaller, the investigations. And then the top slice, the top triangle of the pyramid is actually small. But very, very, very important is the one that has the higher specific weight. It has the higher density because it basically has the value of proof. Although I don't like this thing about proof, okay? I don't think that anything is proven, not even uh, Einstein's general relativity is proven. Oh, yes, we have tons of experiments consistent with general relativity, but and, and therefore it's considered proven, but I want to stay away from the concept of proof. I'm saying that experiments the laboratory, which is the top of the pyramid, add additional extraordinary weight to the evidence. Mm -hmm. I keep and I conclude with the phenomenon of mediumship. People, the stories people tell uh, are that certain individuals, gifted individuals, can basically talk to the dead. Then scientists go out sit with the medium in their cabinet and, and observe and make controls and everything. And this investigation confirms the claims of the anecdotes. Then what do you do? You take the medium in the laboratory in a totally, entirely controlled environment. That's what's done in any other kind of science. And we have, for instance, several seven, if I'm not mistaken to this point, seven independent replication of a scientific experiment. And the latest, uh, the latest that I know of is a quintuple blind experiment. I'm sure you've been hosting Dr. Julie Beichel in your no, show no, or, or Professor Gary Schwartz. These are the originators of this quintuple blind. And I don't want to bore your listeners with a description of what a quintuple blind experimental protocol is. The bottom line is that all the classic accusations of the skeptics against uh, mediums are addressed. No cold reading, no possibility of cold reading, no possibility of wild guessing, no possibilities of suggestions, of feedback from the sitter, because there are five degrees of separation between the medium who's doing the reading and the intended, intended sitter who's the one who wants to hear about the deceased father or mother or whatever it is. Piero, you might have to talk a little bit about this because we have not, I have not interviewed Dr. Julie or Gary Schwartz uh -huh. and I have not heard of five degrees of separation. Oh, I did yes. see Dr. Gary Schwartz, uh, I experienced one of his lectures and I don't remember his story, but it was mind blowing how he spoke to someone who was deceased 
and how that person actually contacted a medium that he didn't know and gave very specific information that eventually got back to him. I mean, so specific. And Ooh, so yeah. I, I, I feel like that's the kind of thing you're speaking at. Would you mind just saying a little bit about what uh, Yes, but no, I mean, honestly, if we go into the five levels we lose our audience well, because no. it's really very complicated. <laughs> but let me let me tell you at least Simplify two, it a little bit. Okay, two, that works. Two of the blinds, the okay. first two of the blinds, okay? Okay. So what happens is uh, just as a matter of an example, let's say that you have a, a deceased father. I don't know if it's the case or not, and I don't yes. want to know. That's but let's, ju- okay. let's just make this, let's take this as an example, okay. a, a fictitious example. You want, you have a deceased father, and you want to get in touch with your father. You go see a medium, and the medium gives you a good reading, a reading which you uh, recognize as truth. Okay, or as relevant, as evidential. Right. And this is what happens. That's the fact. Now, the uh, first objection of the skeptic, and and when I say skeptic, in this case, I don't, I don't, I don't mean it in a pejorative, because we tend to use that in a pejorative manner. I'm just saying that the, the, the a skeptic is somebody who, who wants uh, to understand what's going on. So it is very logical, it is very natural to think that the medium somehow extracted some information from you. Yes. When we say fishing, it means. Uh, I caricaturize here. So, ah, I see a person with the name beginning with M. Right. And you you go dead. And you say, ah, no, it's not M. uh, It's it's actually N. And then you make a little movement. Mm -hmm. You see that the the medium is fishing for information Mm -hmm. and cold reading. Cold reading, it means that they, uh, some people are able to catch small movements, small changes in facial expressions and body language, and based on that, understand if they're on the right track or not. And so they fish more. They start with very generic statements, and they refine the statements so that at the end of the day, they, they zoom in and they can say something that's meaningful to you. Yes. Objection number one. Mm-hmm. Objection number two is that your desire to believe will make you rate the reading you've got you've uh, you've got very high. Right. Because you went you want to hear about your father, and so you may be tempted to force. Maybe certain details are not exactly fitting, but you want to believe. So you, as the sitter, rate that reading highly. Third and last classic objection is that the statements are so general that they would apply to anybody. Right. Okay. Yes. And then again, there's this interpretation factor because you, the sitter, want to think like to think that the statements you're getting are for your father. And so you rate the statements as accurate. How do you take care of these things? First blind is not you who sits with the medium. It's me. 
And I don't know the first thing about your father. I am given a name and a date of birth. End of story. Okay. The medium is blind as to who the, the we call we call it discarnate, okay. as you know, the person in spirit. The medium is blind as to who the person in spirit is. I am blind as well. All I have, I don't even know if your dad is dead. You see, in, in, in our conversation here, I, with, as we started, I did not know if you had a deceased father or not. I am given a name and a date of birth. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anything, rela- family relationship or, or anything. So I go in what we call a proxy sitting. It's not you as the intended sitter, is me a proxy sitter who go and sits with the medium. So already here we have two levels of blinding. And these two levels of blinding, one, the medium is blinded as to who the discarnate is, two, I, the the proxy sitter, I'm also blinded because I don't know your father. Mm -hmm. Take care of any possibility of fishing and cold reading. I hope this is clear to you and it's clear to your listeners. This is exciting. (laughs) What does, what can the medium possibly read out of me? (laughs) I know nothing. He or she, the medium knows nothing, but that we know. And, And I know nothing either. So whatever the medium says is only coming from whatever he or she can, can get out of that discarnate personality. Yes, that makes sense. The third, the third level of blinding is ad- addresses the specificity, addresses the concern that uh, mediums make statements which are so generic that they would apply to anybody. So in, the, in, in Julie Beichel's latest uh, replication, this mechanism of proxy sittings is, since this is an experiment involving many mediums and many sitters, you can do this many times, right? So imagine that in practice, you yourself, Sandra, who you're one of the participants in, in this experiment, mm-hmm. and you wanted to hear from your father. At the end of a long and complicated process, you are provided with four scripts. One is for you, and another three are from other proxy sitters with other discarnates that have nothing to do with you and your father. But you don't know which one is which, and that is the third blind. You are blinded as to who is who in the scripts, in the, in the, the scripts are, are uh, um, basically a verbatim account of what the medium has said, okay. okay? And you have to choose, and people do choose the right scripts with a phenomenally high significance, odds against chance and and blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And there are another two levels of blending. So somebody looking at this protocol said, but here nobody knows anything about anybody. 
Yes, that was exactly the idea. With this watertight protocol, we ensured that all the criticisms, all the possible, quote-unquote, normal explanations for the process of mediumship have been taken care of. So what Julie and her collaborators say is that we have proven that mediums are kept this they're very careful you know as good scientists they say this is not necessarily evidence for survival because they want to cover their that their back conceptually and i think this is very good this is evidence that selected research mediums can provide specific and accurate information about deceased people in the absence of any normal explanation. Is that clear enough? It's clear and it's fantastic. And I think even myself, when I started my journey, or even before, when I I really, as a young woman and even into my 30s, didn't believe in life after death. And I would just genuinely say, oh, there's no proof, you know. And it wasn't until I went on my journey that I found so much good things. And even hearing about double blind and triple blind and quadruple blind, I didn't realize to such an extent this was going on (laughs) on the earth. And I think many people are the same. It's so easy to buy in what other people say. But when you start taking the time to do this research... Precisely. There's no substitute for legwork in your own work in that respect. Wow. And let me conclude the, the, what, what I mean. I call this the basis for a rational belief in life, life after life. Mm-hmm. If, we, if, we, if we leave proof aside for one moment and we say that we have masses of anecdotes which are confirmed by investigations, which are again confirmed by laboratory experiments, you're as close as proof as could possibly be ever. And that is what the convergence, the coherence, the consistency between the stories people tell, the investigations carried out in a naturalistic environment, and the experiments. Everything seems to belong together. there's a a vast amount of confirmation and that is what supports my rational belief in life after life yes it makes makes sense can we discuss your books yes and if i may i would i would i would focus on 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 the last one because it's uh, that that is where uh, i think that i've perhaps made a little contribution no, to, 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 to the world. I think it's more than a little, and I think uh, it, we're going to continue to share it. And, um, well, anyway, let's just touch on the other two briefly, and then we'll go Yeah, tw- into- 21, 21 days into the afterlife was the uh, regurgitation, basically. It's as a book that the, probably the same things. You have been writing the same things. Uh, David Fontana, that the British uh, professor I, I spoke about a moment ago, wrote in his the, the 575 pages, there's tons of books containing the same information. 
the originality and, and perhaps the reason for the limited success that uh, 21 Days has had, and it's been translated in a few languages, is the fact that it's very, very accessible. It's in a dialogue format. And 21 Days uh, are, are 21 days of each day I, I debate and I discuss with a skeptic which is actually myself, Sandra, is myself before I discovered all that, myself asking, what the heck are you talking about? Have you got out of your mind? And and, and the new myself listen, saying, listen, I, I don't want to convince you of anything. Just follow me as I tell you these stories and I show you and explain the experiments and the investigations and the anecdotes and all that. And, and we do this over a period of 21 days because I divided this in chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, every, every day there's, there's, we review a, a separate uh, area of evidence. Then with uh, adventures of psychical research, I got away lightly because I've simply put together a collection of 54 articles I had written for my blog, uh, polished them, structured them, and, and published them. As, as a book. I have also written a book on apparitions, which is available for free to anybody who has the kindness to sign up to my, uh, to my mailing list. And I publish maybe a couple of times a month, I publish articles on, on psychical research and the survival hypothesis and consciousness studies. So through my website, uh, uh, DR Parisetti, Paris, it's not difficult because uh, Parisetti has Paris like the town in France yes. and E-T-T-I at the end. So drparisetti.com. Uh, people stum stumble uh, upon this website and you, you sign up for this um, for my mailing list. And obviously you can unsubscribe anytime and, and there's all the privacy things and blah, blah. And you get a book as well. And that's uh, uh, Apparitions is the most scholarly of my books. It is a little heavy, but for the, you know, for, for the real passionate investigator and, 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 and the person who's really passionate about these things, there's plenty of reference and we go really a little bit in depth looking at apparitions of, uh, of deceased people. And uh, wow. I think it's interesting. This is great. And for our listener, too, to make this easy, if you go to wedontdieradio.com and click on episode 123, uh, which is Piero's episode, I'm also included links to Julie Beichel, Dr. Gary mm -hmm. Schwartz, the book he mentioned uh, by David Fontana, Is There an Afterlife, and also be a link to his website, um, and to, just to make this easier. Or just Thanks visit very much. Thank you very much. .com. Yeah. There you go. I like to make it easy. Okay, back to you. Fantastic. However, <laughs> however, by far in my own assessment, by far the most important of my works is, is a big, ambitious project which I have undertaken uh, now almost five years. I've started almost five years ago. And here I have to take you on a little journey because this thing starts from afar. Okay. To begin with, remember, I'm a medical doctor and I choose this profession because I wanted to help others. This is not a cheesy thing. That's a reality. 
that's the kind of person I am. For better or worse, uh, that's that's something that has been with me for for you know all my adult life has never been has never gone away has never been into question and I came to accept it as a as a as a, an essential part of myself. And that's the same reason that had brought me to to work in in humanitarian operations to to bring my desire to help to to a different level. So now fast forward to to you know the momentous years after my discovery of all this evidence and and, and you know the science of psychical research and blah blah. And it was not long before I realized that uh, all that I had learned could be potentially of, of great benefit for people who are mourning a loss, people who are in pain over the loss of a loved one, yes. and people who fear death, because that's an often um, sort of forgotten area because there's a lot of people who suffer from thanatophobia, the fear of death and the uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen, the fear of cessation and everything. So my point was that uh, all we know, all we have learned through over, I mean, over 150 years of psychical research can be of extraordinary benefit to these two categories of people. So that's basis number one is my desire to help. Basis number two is uh, uh, the knowledge, the, the understanding that what I had learned could be of benefit for, for many people. Basis number three, and we get uh, very personal here, but there's no, there's no whole mystery. There's, there's nothing to be nothing particularly private about this, uh, about ooh, now 15, 16 years ago, I suffered from an episode about of severe depression for about two years, uh, and it's been a, a very dramatic uh, happening in my life. I was frankly suicidal. And what uh, helped me to come completely clean of this was cognitive uh, therapy. I was living in the U.S. at the time, and thank God in the U.S., uh, cognitive therapy in the U.K. as well now, but then uh, the U.S. was an early adopter. Cognitive therapy is the primary recommendation for uh, the treatment of depression and panic attacks. It's a form of talk therapy, which is based on a very simple premise, that the, 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 the way we feel our feelings, what we think we, we have in our hearts, depends entirely on the way we think. Unfortunately, I have no time and we have no space in, in this short talk to get into the details, but take my words, look up cognitive therapy, the concepts are very easy. Mm-hmm. The point is that we feel bad because we think bad. Our thoughts, we, particularly we depressed people, engage in automatic thoughts that we do not recognize, which are skewed, constantly skewed towards negativity. We think and we believe things which are not true. They are unrealistic and they are skewed in 
the negative. What cognitive therapy does is not to make you try to make you thinking positively, because that would be unrealistic as well. It would be just skewed in the other direction. Right. And research shows that positive thinking has no effects, particularly long term. What cognitive therapy does is to teach you to recognize the distortions in your thinking and helps you thinking more realistically in a more balanced way. Perhaps your listeners start seeing where am I going, where, where I am going with all this. My thinking is that the pain of a loss is absolutely dramatic. It is also the most common of human experiences. Everybody in, throughout all human history has had to go through this terrible pain. Yes. There is a part of the pain, of that particular pain, which I believe is simply unavoidable. It is an integral part of our experience as human beings. There's no therapy, there's no thinking, there's no belief, there's nothing that can touch that hard core of suffering. This is something we have to go through, period. Mm -hmm. However, there is a significant part of the pain of the loss, of the pain of a loss, which is avoidable. And it is the, the, the pain that derives from thinking that my loved one has disappeared, has ceased to exist, has vanished, atomized. Why do I say that that is avoidable? Because that pain is supported by a thinking which is not realistic. Because reality is that in a way we do not understand our personality survives physical death. So if you think my deceased father has vanished, does not exist anymore, you're thinking wrongly. And therefore, I thought of applying simple cognitive therapy techniques to restructure that part of the thinking. The workbook, Love Knows No Death, is a cognitive therapy-based workbook associated to 30 video lessons. It took me 2,000 hours to produce this video course. And the video course uh, is about eight hours of video lessons and pieces of documentaries and interviews with scientists and all that. Those videos have to be used in conjunction with the workbook because that is a well-established cognitive therapy technique. And the aim is to show bereaved people that their belief that their loved ones do not exist anymore is false. Not as a matter of faith, not because I tell them, not because Professor Schwartz or anybody tell them. It is the process of going through the evidence, of knowing and critically reviewing the evidence that brings to the improvement. People do feel better because they say, I looked at it, I did not believe in the beginning, but then slowly I surrendered 
to the evidence. Finally, there is a, 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 a tiny corollary to all this, which also I found very interesting and sort of motivated me uh, to get into this. Uh, do you have you heard about Dr. Kenneth Ring? Yes, the founder of the International Association for Near Death Studies and one of the pioneers of research on uh, on near death experiences. Kenneth Ring noticed something very, very interesting. You and, and I'm sure many of your listeners know that one of the effects of near-death experiences for those who've had one is that they undergo a transformation. They have a really a, 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 an array of psychological and behavioral changes. They become less materialistic, more interested in knowledge per se, less religious, more spiritual. They are generally happier. Their fear of death disappears completely. They yes. become more humanitarian. There's really a, 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 a vast range of these modifications in their psychology and behavior, which lasts for a lifetime. Those changes are still very apparent 20, 25, 30 years after the NDEs. And all these are beneficial changes, are they not? I mean, who would not <laughs> like to be less less materialistic right, and you know yes. happier and have no fear of death and what Kenneth Ring showed, and this is extraordinarily interesting, is that some of these changes show up in people who did not have an ND but simply read about NDs. And the more people read and informed themselves about near-death experiences, the more these changes appeared. Therefore, what with love knows no death, I set out to try to educate my public, not educate, you know, in a patronizing way, but to take bereaved people and those who are in fear of death in a path of rational discovery hoping that what they discover and rationally understand will help them think better and therefore feel better. Every week there's somebody, as it, is, as it happens to, to, to your own blog and, and vlog, every week I've got somebody writing to me saying that they've gone through the book, the workbook, they've looked at the videos, and it has helped them tremendously. And that, for me, is the best reward. The only reward, should I say, because I've donated this entire resource. I do not make one penny out of this. Not that I got any rich with my books, as you know, but that's not the point. But this particular uh, resource, and I say, as I told you, I really put in a lot of work. Then I donated to a fantastic organization I cooperate with. It's called the Forever Family Foundation which is a non-religious, not-for-profit organization, uh, which has now, to the latest count, over 12,000 volunteers and members worldwide. And the organization is dedicated exactly to what you and I do, Sandra, to further the knowledge of afterlife science and evidence 
for the benefit of uh, the bereaved. So uh, Love Knows No Death is available on Amazon. One buys the book, which, let me say, for what it is, the workbook, and particularly, you know, the associated video costs a pittance, costs next to nothing. One buys the book, and through the book, then you have access to the eight hours of, uh, of 30 video modules uh, which are associated with the workbook. Boy, have I spoken a lot. Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting because when um, my listener recommended you and he had done your workbook with the videos, I thought, oh... It's going to be a $200 course. And I always like to uh, buy the books that my my list, uh, that my people I'm interviewing have. And I saw it. It's $19.95, 20 bucks. And I thought, and I, I have it in my hand. And, um, and everybody knows me. I'm not on these shows to pitch products, and I don't make an income from them. But it is a lot of value in this. And... Um, and it, it it gives me great pleasure to know that you donate the proceeds. And I didn't, and I've never even heard of Forever Family Foundation. So that's something I, I'm going to look into. You, and you you may certainly also add another possible guest for uh, for your show, uh, Bob and Fran Ginsberg, the, the the founders, the originators of this are marvelous people and lovely lovely souls to talk to they too i'll send you the contacts later on i love this they too are really 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 nice people and fun as well although they came to this like yourself through a most tragic loss but still they they have a marvelous sense of humor really nice people oh thank you so much this is exciting because you know i always thought not that i was alone but I think many of us, it's really easy to feel like we're alone on our journeys. And, and to an extent, we are. We each have you our may own say that. Yes, life indeed. to lead. But to know that there are so many resources, and especially in the life after death realm, and living life powerfully, and helping people through grief, and, and all of these things, that there's a bunch of us. And to be able to connect, and, you know, there comes a point, Piero, that, you realize, you know, we don't die. So my life must be for something. And so we go on our own growths. And just like people have had the near death experiences, it, it becomes very natural to want to make a difference with other people. And, and wow, what a, a great way to live life. So I thank you for having this resource. And I'm going to read it, even though, you know, I'm not grieving presently, but I know I've been there. And also, like you say, if you're just somebody who wants to learn more and know for sure that we don't die, and I'm excited to even watch your videos. Marvelous. Marvelous. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Do you have any closing words? It's about the end of the hour. I no, love no, talking I, with you or listening to you. I should such say. a pleasure, such a pleasure. And it, I understand that's been a, a, a very one-way thing. I apologize for no, that, but I'm, I'm, right. a, I'm, a, I'm a little over-enthusiastic. And then I go into professor mode. You know, I've been doing this for so many years that I, I just talk and talk and talk. Well, I hope this has been interesting, for it, especially for your listeners. Yeah, I'm the same way when I'm on interviews. You know, I know my stuff. And there's a short period of time, and I want to share it. And people have heard me speak plenty of times, so I'm happy to have listened to you. <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, thank you very, very much. A great pleasure for me, too. 
And as I said, I'll now, before I go out here, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll send you a couple of links and contacts of people that I think you should be speaking mm-hmm. to. You're the best. And for our listener, too, thank you for spending this last hour with us. Again, if you go to wedontdieradio.com and click on episode 123, it's Piero's website. Uh, is com, but I have all the links to the people that he's mentioned on the show, the book that he mentioned, his books, and it just is an easy place. And you can see what he looks like. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm also going to include, uh, or I have included, depending on when you listen to this, the links to your YouTube videos, because I think those are also very, very valuable to watch. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh, in, in, in fact, perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll also send you the link directly to to the page for the um, for the workbook, which has a video inside. It's the same video is available there directly. Oh, perfect! That's great. So we'll link all of that on your page at We Don't Die Radio, episode one, two, three. Well, everyone, I thank you for listening. And in closing, as you know, my name is Sandra Champlain, and I've been your host on We Don't Die Radio. And I do believe with all my heart that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on Earth is important. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.